I think theology's for the clergy. I just believe in Jesus. Certain hermeneutics of eschatology demand an exegetical approach. I think you shouldn't question what you were taught in church. Isn't that blasphemy or something? Hey friends, welcome to the broadcast. This is Theology Unplugged. Um, I'm joined by Tim and Sam here in studio. Hello, hello, hello. What does it mean that we're unplugged, Tim? Well, what it means is unplugged is Sam and I, about five (laughs) seconds before the broadcast, say, so what are we going to talk about? And you say, I'm not going to tell you. And we say, okay, hit record. And so that's what unplugged means. Well, I I want to sound like the smart person. I prepare all mine, (laughs) and then I come in here and throw it on you. Yeah, And, and it's not so much that we're lazy to not prepare or anything like that, but the idea of being unplugged is is the three of us that, Lord willing, our lives are a pursuit of God, and uh, we're interested in devoting our lives towards Him. And when we get together, the idea would be three chums at a coffee shop, a topic comes up on a certain issue of the Lord, and this is our conversation that pursues. With the idea that maybe you're in an environment where you, you desire that type of a conversation, you don't have it, or you're just curious just to listen and to learn and to grow as we are. And so this is the conversation that, that comes out of this unplugged nature. Well, hopefully uh, unplugged is synonymous with, um, with uh, authentic. Yeah. Spontaneous. 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 That's a good Dangerous. word. Dangerous. Yeah. Dangerous. That's a, that's well, a good one. I'll throw out it. Organic. Uh, no, Maybe. That's, that's too unplugged. The about, word's kind of over. recantable. <laughs> In other words, we can always recant <laughs> things we say because we weren't prepared. Now, that's what it all comes down to, yeah. is the, the recantability of it. You can always say, hey, we were unplugged, you know. That's, uh, <laughs> there was no formality yeah, to what we're I get, talking I get about a mulligan here. on that one. Well, good. Thank you for joining us, guys. Uh, thank you for those of you who have been with us for quite some time, listening to us over the years, I think since 2000. And, Five maybe is whenever we started Theology Unplugged. Um, those of you who are new to the broadcast, like to welcome you all. Uh, feel free to go back in the archives. All the archives should be available on iTunes, so you can go back as far as you'd like and get all caught up on all of our recantability uh, or our authenticity or our unpreparedness, however you want to put it. That's right. Um, we're continuing a series called uh, Top Reasons Not to Be Christian. I, I hesitate to say top ten because I don't want to put us in any type of binds, though, but maybe it ends up being a top ten. And we're not doing it in any specific order of importance either. No, we're not. Um, I, I don't know what the top reason is or what the tenth reason is. But what I'm trying to do with this, guys, and let me just reorient you guys a little bit. I'm trying to look out there and to see in the culture what are the reasons why people might be attracted to Christianity while not altogether illegitimate are wrong foundational reasons for becoming a Christian. You know, some people, like we talked about last time, say, you know, I'm just unhappy. I'm sad all the time, and things aren't going well in my life, and my marriage is messed up, and my kids are disobedient, and maybe if I become a Christian, you know, all that will get straightened out. I'll be happy. And we talked about that last time as being a a pursuit of, of a different type of happiness that does not ultimately fulfill. And we said that uh, in the end, we become a Christian because we are oriented towards the reality of our God and to follow him. Mm -hmm. This time I want to ask this question about um, 
about being happy. Last time it was about being happy. And I think this will be related, so this will dovetail well into what we talked about last time. But uh, the uh, pursuit of, of not having to go through difficulties or suffering. Um, you may say in your life, hey, listen, you know, I, I believe in God. I've always believed in God since I was little. Um, no, he's out there. He's the big guy in the sky and he's in control of everything. And I want to have him on my side. And, you know, things have been really troublesome in my life. I got a car wreck the other day for, you know, it was a ridiculous car wreck and I uh, got fired from my job and and I just don't seem to be advancing well. I seem to be going through hard times and suffering. You know, my, my kids always get sick and I think I need to start turning to the Lord now so that I can have my life be more in order and by defining it that way, I'm saying so that I don't have to go through so much suffering, so many pains, so many difficulties. Now, let me tell you the story. Maybe this may be the theme story. I think last time I talked about my mom and the phone call I had to her in Arizona. This one will be about another friend of mine um, that I grew up with. And last time I talked about my wild days in Arizona, this friend happened to be with me in Arizona. And I, I was I was giving him the gospel as we jumped from bar to bar, you know, at, uh, on the way there and driving around. It was kind of one of those deals. I believed in God, but, you know, I, I wanted to have a, a different type of lifestyle than one that uh, pursued God. But I remember always talking to him saying, listen, you, you just got to understand, all you have to do is believe in Jesus. He rose from the grave, and that's it. And, and don't worry about this. We're not. Look at me. I, don't, I didn't change my life, so you don't have to either. It was kind of this minimalistic approach, <laughs> just trying to get him to bite. And, and that graduated to the point where I began to pursue Christ, you know, around 21 or 22 years old, really changed my lifestyle and really uh, committed to Christ and in, in, in everything that I, that I uh, was doing. But I continued my pursuit of him. Many, many years later, probably eight years later, we were on the phone probably every other night for two to three hours talking about Jesus. He was married. I was married. He had kids. I had kids. He was thinking differently, and um, he was looking towards me. Michael, you remember when we used to talk about God all the time? Well, I'm starting to consider God, so I, I want to know why it is that you think I should be a Christian. So we talked and talked and talked, and I gave him everything. He had questions about you know, the legitimacy of Jesus and the historicity of Jesus and the, the reality of the Bible, and did Jesus really raise from the grave? And I sent him book after book. Yeah, what about all the contradictions? What about the hypocrisy in the church? I remember sending him, you know, Grace Awakening, apologetics book on the resurrection. And we came to a point, a focal point. This focal point came after my sister had died. Uh, you guys, I think, I'm pretty sure you're familiar that she had committed suicide back in 2004. After she had died, this was at the, the point in our conversation with this guy that um, he was very, very close, it seemed, to committing to God and committing his life over to Jesus. And an, after the funeral, he... 
he, he was there at the funeral, and I remember him waiting around the side of the house at the after-funeral kind of get-together at my parents' house, and he was waiting for me to come talk to him, and I made my way over there, and, and he was there alone, and he said, Michael, here's where I'm at. Okay, now listen to me, guys. Okay, This is the, this is the key for our broadcast. Michael, here's where I'm at. I get it. This is exactly how I said it. I get it. I believe that Jesus Christ is who you say he is. I believe that he did rise from the grave. I get it all. But here's the one question I have for you. This is the, the clincher. Your mother has followed the Lord all of her life. She's the best Christian I know. And look what God did to her. He took away her daughter. And I don't know anybody else who has gone through a suicide in such a way. If I, and here's this question, if I follow Jesus, is he going to do the same thing to me? I mean, think about that. That's kind of the question. You come to a point, you say, if I follow Jesus, what can I expect? Do I expect the same type of suffering that your mother, who is the example for me, has gone through with her child? Or what? What did she do wrong? How do you prevent that? Because ultimately what he's doing is he's looking towards his children, and he's looking at the prospect of suffering in the same way. And he's actually not only saying, is God going to protect me from suffering, but is he actually going to bring me into suffering if I do this, because I don't want any part of it. That, that was essentially what he was saying to me. I don't want any part of it if this is what I can expect. And, and your mom has since moved into a, a worse, I mean, shortly thereafter, she had a, a brain aneurysm, and, and she's in a, a horrendous, I mean, you, you tomorrow you'll be caring for her because she can't care for herself. And so, you know, it's even been worse for your mom that she has entered into extreme suffering. Yeah, <clears throat> I, I hear what your friend is saying, and you know, we always have to be very careful that we don't give um, short, um, curt, little pre-packaged answers to pr- deeply, profoundly uh, important questions that that people in that situation would ask. But I would I would say to him, um, if you choose to reject the Jesus whom you say. Uh, is who he claimed to be, that isn't going to guarantee that somebody in your family isn't going to commit suicide. That isn't going to guarantee that you're going to be spared uh, a measure of suffering and heartache in life. Um, what it What is guaranteed if you become a Christian is that if God does, for whatever reason, uh, lead you through this kind of deprivation and hurt and suffering, the one thing you can count on is he will never, by no means ever, cut you off from his love and from the forgiveness of sins that you will have for eternity. So in life, you're going to endure hardship and heartache and suffering, whether it's the suicide of a child or um, a terminal diagnosis in your own body or financial bankruptcy or um, any other of a number of ad- adverse experiences, um, not being, choosing not to be a Christian isn't going to insulate you from those kinds of experiences. Um, becoming a Christian isn't going to guarantee that 
you're never going to have them. What becoming a Christian means is that those experiences have no effect on or bearing with regard to the eternal welfare of your soul. So when I, I would come back to Romans 8, the end of Romans 8, when a person asks that kind of question. And I would say, here's what um, the Lord says, that there may well be tribulation and trial and distress and heartache. You know, He even says we can be compared to those who are led like sheep to slaughter on a daily basis. But what he tells us is that notwithstanding all of this, neither things present, the things you're experiencing now, nor the things to come, Neither height nor depth, nor principality nor power, nor any other created thing can separate you from the love of God that is in Jesus. If you choose to walk away from the person of Christ, you will never know that love. And in fact, it will turn into an eternity of separation from him. So, um, you know, let's be honest. I can't tell you that if you come to Jesus that you won't experience the same loss my mother just experienced. Can't make that promise to you. Now, there are some versions of so-called Christianity that do make that promise. They tell you that, you know, no, if you'll, if you'll follow Jesus and always have enough faith, he will insulate you and your loved ones from this kind of tragedy. And some people call those the gospel of this or that, and I, I don't think we should call it. The, that's not good news. It's not a gospel because it's, it's a lie. So I understand where somebody's coming from when they ask that question. Um, but then you have to say, all right, it sounds to me like what you want Jesus to be for you is this guarantee, this insurance against any kind of heartache comparable to what I've just witnessed in your mother. And we have to be honest and say, no, can't make that guarantee. What I can guarantee you is nothing will ever separate you from the love of God in Christ. I mean, Jesus himself said, in this world, you will have trouble. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome. And and I think that that's the idea. We uh, in the discipleship program, we we talk, we spend forty five minutes on this, go into it in depth. Uh, you can see it on on Vimeo. We've got that whole session, session nine, and in there as well. We we start by saying Christians will get cancer at the same rate as non Christians. Christians will die at the same rate as non-Christians. Of those who followed Christ the most closely, who who for years you know laid down their head and slept right next to him and woke up and ate all their meals with him, his disciples lived life with him, and almost all of them died brutal deaths. They they weren't all given these mansions and and lived these nice long lives and died peacefully in their sleep. They experienced suffering. Paul, you see him being beaten towards a, you know a hair from death uh, on more than one occasion, being shipwrecked many times. Uh, he even mentions in Acts that he cried at times the things that were happening to him. And then as as uh, as Sam was quoting, I mean we we see he can say we're crushed. But we're not destroyed, and so uh, so I think that we we see this throughout Scripture, and I think that we should take heart in that that we won't experience anything that has not been experienced by other people. Hebrews chapter eleven, we see people experiencing tremendous suffering, but it says they're looking forward uh, to future things, and and we can look to Christ and say, I don't know what to do. There is a storm over my head right now. My wife and I have been in this situation where we just beg God to see the sunrise. 
It's late at night. We don't even know if we're going to be able to make it through this night. And we're just pleading, please, may we just make it to morning. And that is a reality for us. But in Christ, we have a greater, we have a, a, a reality that is there as well, that he will never leave us or forsake us. I've seen some uh, statistics. You know, you were talking about statistics beforehand. I mean, we got we got one out of every one Christian dies. One out of every one Christian who prays regularly dies. One out of every one Christian who reads their Bible regularly dies. One out of every one Christian who goes gives, to church or gives ten percent, gives ten tithes, yeah. dies. And so we don't see a drastic change at all in the in the mortality rate. Uh, so that you know the ultimate end in that sense, uh, outside of Christ's uh, return, is the same. I but I sometimes see these statistics. Uh, I don't know when it was, like from Time Magazine a study that they did on prayer and tried to show whether or not prayer actually got people out of the hospital quicker. You know, the, the, here's the statistics on those who pray. Here's the statistics on those who don't pray. And maybe there's a variation, a slight bit to where the people who pray do not or spend shorter times in the hospital. And you see something like that and you're like, wow, okay, well, that's a, that's a little incentive. Uh, to become a Christian because uh, it seems to be that we have more access or more arm-twisting ability with regards to God's power. Mm. Um, don't know about some of that stuff, but I, I wonder, Sam, Tim, I wonder if, is this right to say, I, I don't know, I really don't. Is it right to say that as Christians we may be entitled to based upon our relationship with God, based upon his His ownership of us, based upon his pursuit of our becoming like him, we may be entitled to a little bit more suffering even? Is well, that possible? I, I think it can be. You know, we were, like John Calvin even talks about, at times we are looking at the glory of, of God, we're basking in the glory, uh, in his uh, grace, his mercy on our lives. But then Calvin says once in a while God gives him the cross. And Calvin went through a lot of physical problems and, and was ill several times in his life. And and it, he, he thought and likened it in the way that God was letting him experience the cross, letting him see the the wretchedness and the pain of the cross. But what we, what we also mentioned in the discipleship program when we talk about too is that some Christians will not suffer as much as other Christians, and some Christians will not. In many ways, some Christians might say, "You know what? I've really never suffered significantly in my life." And what we sometimes call them it, blessed, right? I yeah. And, and what we want to say though is, you you should you should not be surprised by suffering, but suffering should not be an indication of maturity in Christ. Because I think the flip side, someone can say, well, I am a premier mature Christian because I've suffered a lot and can even find pride in their suffering and look it down on other people who haven't suffered. Instead, we should say, no, that person who has not suffered as much, they are blessed and we are thankful to the Lord that they have not suffered as much as someone else does, like your mom. Uh, but we shouldn't say, we shouldn't seek to say, oh, you should seek out suffering in order to become a mature Christian because that that's not what we're saying. If I was to say to that gentleman, my friend. Sam is really, I mean, he's thinking hard. I can Keep going. Maybe that's will lead into this. Sam, if I would have said to him, and again, I'm not leading anywhere. This is unplugged. 
if I were to say to him, you know what, friend, it's not that God is going to protect you in or protect your children because that's that's specifically what he said. Mm-hmm. Is God going to do that to my children? Conversely, maybe he will bring you into some hardships that are more difficult than you would go through if you were not a Christian. Is that accurate? Say that again. God may actually take you into more hardships and more suffering if you become a Christian. Yes. So are, are you safer in that sense, from that perspective, from what he's saying, in a sense, and, and I know you said you're not safer in the, because you are going to go through hard times whether you're a Christian or not, but are you safer that that you may not have to experience this, the, the trials that God will put you through if you're not a Christian, so it's an incentive not to become a Christian? Well, if the only concern of your soul is what you experience in this life and you have no regard for the next, then uh, sure, don't become a believer. You know, immerse yourself in every carnal, sinful, worldly pleasure you can. Do whatever you have to to protect and guard yourself and your family members from any kind of heartache or disappointment or trial. Uh, But that's basically what Jesus was saying. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? Mm. That's what I just Mm. was defined. That's what gaining the whole world is. And then forfeits or loses his soul. Mm. Um, You know, I think of Paul in Philippians 1. You know, here he is in jail. Um, writing to the Philippians, and all he said was, is that I just want Christ to be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. And then at the end of Philippians 1, he says, for it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his namesake. Now think of that. So he says, it's been given to you. It is a gift. It is a blessing for the sake of Christ to endure suffering that you otherwise wouldn't have endured if you had remained in unbelief. And the reason is because um, there is this incredible privilege and opportunity in the midst of suffering to show forth the sufficiency and the majesty of who Jesus is. Uh, It it, it sounds strange to non-believing, unregenerate ears, but... When Christians endure the kind of devastation that they so often do and yet remain steadfast in their faith, the desired effect is for people outside the faith to look at that and say, wow, what what kind of a God is this that could um, be regarded as sufficiently glorious and beautiful and majestic that this person would continue to believe in and follow him in spite of what's just happened. Hmm. That must be. Either this person is the most deluded idiot on the face of the earth, or he has a really, really big, really, really great and glorious God, Hmm. and I need to know that God. So uh, getting back to your question, you use the word entitled. Um, let's, Let's change the word to expectant. Uh, should should a Christian, somebody maybe even who's on the verge of converting to Jesus, you're talking with them, you're, you're laboring with them over the issues of the gospel, should we say to that individual, you need to understand that uh, your life physically, financially, and emotionally, and relationally, and career-wise might conceivably be more, better and uh, more prosperous and safer 
uh, and less pain-free if you choose to walk away from Jesus. You need to know that. You need to know that if you embrace Christ, there is a very strong likelihood that those things will be uh, less in your life than if you choose to reject the Lord. And, and although we haven't even brought it up yet, we would say that Satan will be less inclined to ask permission to test you. Yeah, to sift you like wheat, as yeah. he did with Peter. Certainly. Um, so I, I think we have to be forthright and upfront with people about well, you're, that. You're putting up the flag of God in enemy territory. Mm-hmm. Don't raise the flag. Yeah. Is it safer not to raise your flag in enemy territory? And you say yes in, in certain ways. But as we said last time, does that make you happier? No, not at all. Because everybody knows that has been pursuing those things, gaining the whole world, knows that the, the, the acquisition of the whole world brings absolutely no satisfaction to your soul. And then finally, at death, which everybody will go through, an eternity of separation from ultimate purpose and ultimate fulfillment, and mostly God. Yeah, because if you say, okay, I'm not going to follow God, I'm just going to follow my desires for the next five years, and anything I think of and anything I desire, I'm just going to do it, at the end of five years, you are going to be one miserable, lonely man. And I, I've gone down that road, and, and many people can testify to say that if you think you're going to forsake suffering by going your own road, you are, you are on a path that is not fulfilling, that has no joy, and that is only momentary and is always seeking something to give you a high that you, that you had the day before. And you are recognizing that that you are actually making yourself suffer, I think. But, yeah, I mean, I think all of this, and uh, like Charles Spurgeon, I think, is a great example. He would actually use, he would look to suffering, so he experienced great depression and many times couldn't even get out of bed, but he said, I knew the Lord was about ready to do something big in my life whenever he would crush me, because in crushing me, he would reduce me so that Christ can be magnified. So basically, my tank is empty. It's shot full of bullet holes. I can't keep any of me. My tank is empty, and now it has to only be filled with God. And when it was filled with God, when that was the only only hope that you had in the middle of your suffering was that I have exhausted all of my resources. Now the only thing I can do is borrow from him and let his resources be what I live on now. That That's when Spurgeon said, that's when, when really my life would take off. Let me come back to, uh, I think, Tim, you even alluded to the statements in Second Corinthians 4, where Paul says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. And you hear that kind of language. And people say, all right, so you're telling me that I can expect affliction, perplexity, persecution, and being struck down. The answer is yes, but it's not crushing. It's not, it's, it's not terminal, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And then Paul says at the end of 2 Corinthians 4, so then we do not lose heart. Now we say, how do you not lose heart? If I had experienced those sorts of things, and if I was carrying about in my body the dying of Jesus on a daily basis and being mistreated uh, in, in these ways, why wouldn't I lose heart? And then he gives the answer. 
He says, though our outer self is wasting away. Paul says, I admit, my, my physiological being, my life in terms of the externalities is decaying on a regular basis. But my inner self is being renewed day by day. And then he says, for this light momentary affliction. Now, this is what strikes people as odd. How can you call daily affliction, perplexity, persecution, and being struck down light and momentary? And when it probably lasted decades. Yes. Yeah. And here's his answer. It's because it's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So ultimately, Paul is saying, I'm not denying the heartache, the pain, the deprivation that can come with following Jesus. What I'm saying is, according to Paul, compared with the eternal weight of glory that is being reserved for us in Christ, it is it it makes this feel like light momentary affliction because I have an eternal weight of glory that has been reserved for me. So sometimes we need to talk to people in terms of taking the long view. If you're if you're simply Considering Christ based on short-term payoffs, don't do it. But if you're considering Christ based on the eternal joys that are promised to those who yield their life to him and confess him as Lord and Savior, obviously, yes. Um, So, again, it it, it comes down sometimes to a person asking the question, getting coming full circle here to your friend at, at the funeral. If he's looking at solely at the immediate, short-term um, results or consequences of becoming a believer and what that might bring into his life and grounding his decision solely in that rather than taking into consideration the long view, in fact, the eternal perspective, um, following Jesus isn't going to make much sense to him. Mm. Well, I, I think, folks, what we're talking about here is that one of you look down these paths. We're we're simply saying this: that the the path of God is not necessarily the path of least resistance, and that path may be filled with all kinds of trials and difficulties that may not have been there otherwise. Everybody's going to die again. Cancer rates going to be the same. All kinds of problems that Christians and non Christians go through. But what we're talking about is purposeful. What we're talking about is there's reason behind it. Meaningless suffering is the absolute worst type of suffering. And outside of Christ, that's what it is. It's, it's, it's not meaningful. But in Christ, it is meaningful. And ultimately, folks, we say the reason why we don't become a Christian because we want to alleviate ourselves of suffering is simply this. Because... Becoming a Christian is the pursuit of reality and truth first, not the pursuit, as Sam said, short-term gains. And that, that I, I hope that that's the point that we continue to belabor, that, that we are fixing our eyes upon Christ and in doing so, fixing our eyes upon reality, come what may in the difficulties that uh, – are in this life. Yeah, I, I think you summed it up well. It's, it's a question of, do you want short-term gain but suffer eternal loss? Hmm. Or do you want eternal gain and perhaps endure some short-term loss? 
Do not be surprised by the fiery ordeal, Peter says, First Peter 4.12, which comes upon you as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that at the revelation, so that when at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. That's our hope, folks. That, that's it. That's what it comes down to. Hope you've enjoyed this broadcast, uh, this, these broadcasts on um, reasons not to be a Christian. And I hope they're taken in the, the right vein and understanding of what we're trying to present. Thanks, guys, for uh, being here once again. And we'll pick this back up next week. Sounds good. You've been listening to Theology Unplugged. Visit our iTunes page by searching Theology Unplugged at the iTunes store. All episodes are available as free downloads. Theology Unplugged is made possible by Reclaiming the Mind Ministries. Reclaiming the Mind Ministries is a listener-supported ministry. If you've enjoyed this session or benefited from it in any way, do consider partnering with us. For information on how to become a ministry partner and for a complete listing of ministry resources, visit the RMM homepage at www.reclaimingthemind.org. Thank you for listening, and God bless.